want to thank everybody for being here this morning. Welcome everybody once again on behalf of the church. And um, I just want to tell you, uh, some of you I know and I've known and seen your faces, you know, for years. And some of you I don't know. Um, if you don't know me, uh, I just want to tell you I have one desire today, and that is to lift up the Lord. I, I don't care about it, anything else, and I, I mean that in all sincerity. I'm, I don't just say it. Um, but this morning, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful um, your pastor, Brother Jeremy, is, is uh, a good friend of mine, and I just thank the Lord that he's provided you all with a pastor who I know has a heart for him and a lot of energy. <laughs> I always tease him. He, he, <laughs> I've never seen somebody preach with so much enthusiasm and excitement, um, but it's not put on, and you know that by now. And, and I always feel like after we spend time together uh, that I leave with a little bit more desire to serve the Lord. So I just want you to know that. Uh, but my heart's really full this morning. We came into the building, my wife and I, and immediately several of you, you know, said, I've been praying for you, I can't believe you're up walking like this. For those of you who don't know, um, my wife, we, we got married May 4th this year, so we're newlyweds, and um, end of May she got sick, and we went to the ER on maybe June 2nd, and... Um, she walked in, but within a couple of days she couldn't walk, and then she lost complete use of her legs and lost the use of her hands. And, and finally, to, to make a long story short, um, only really had the use of her head and mouth and, you know, and uh, I'm really overwhelmed that so much has happened in such a short amount of time. God is faithful. And you know what? Even if she didn't walk in here today, we talked about that when we got here. We looked at the ramp and I said, well, if you came in a wheelchair, we could have got you in there up the ramp. We didn't know what to expect. You understand? All they told us, if anybody knows, it was called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And the doctors basically said, your, your body is attacking its own nerves, basically. And there's nothing we can do to stop it. It's going to keep getting worse until it stops. And then it's going to reverse. And it may take you a year to get better. That's what they told us. A lot of people, they said most people recover, but it might take a year to get your full function back. And I mean, she walked into church with me today. And um, three Sundays in a row we've done that. And it still overwhelms me. I'm thankful for this church. And so many of you that I've known most of my life. And even though maybe we're not that close in everyday life, I don't see you often. I want to tell you I'm thankful for your faithfulness. And uh, some of you may remember I'm a product of your faithfulness. I was saved here in 1999 on July 4th. And I'm pretty sure, although the building I don't remember very well, I don't remember who preached, I don't remember all that kind of stuff, but I think it was here. And I, I do remember this, I, the church was full of people praying and I got over in this area because I, there was no room to get all the way up there. And I just begged the Lord and cried out to Him and prayed for hours, honestly. 
And I don't want to give the impression to anybody who doesn't know the Lord yet, you don't have to pray for hours. You have to pray until you get yourself out of the way and you're able to repent and surrender fully to Jesus. Then He saves you. When God deals with your heart, all it takes, and I want to tell you children, if you're not saved yet, all it takes when God deals with your heart is to humble yourself before Him, to basically give your whole life to Him. That's what repentance is. In that moment, it is letting go of any illusion of control that you have and giving yourself fully to Jesus. It's unconditional surrender. And that happened for me right there. And um, so I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank God for your faithfulness. Whatever may go on in your lives, whatever discouragement you might have, whatever doubts you might have about, Lord, are we making a difference? I was one young man who was saved, partly because of your faithfulness. And I've been trying to serve the Lord. I've been trying to preach about 14 years now. So we never know the impact. So I just thank you. One more thing I want to say in kind of introduction. Um, I always hear older people talk about how encouraged you are when young people are around. And I feel the same way about you older people. I really do. I know there's not a lot of people here today, but I'm overwhelmed at the, the, the white hair and the gray hair because my generation, it's hard for us to keep doing the same thing when we aren't seeing results. And your generation has been faithful, even when maybe you couldn't tell whether it was making any difference or not. So thank you. Whatever I say today, whatever I try to preach, that's underneath. That's, that's my heart, is a heart of humbleness and thankfulness for what God has done and how He's helped and how He has preserved a way that people can be saved. You know, a lot of um, churches that I call mainstream religion, they spend years and decades in service after service after service and people walk away never having been told how to know God. It's just assumed that if you go to church, you know God, and they preach about sanctification, and, and they say things like, we're the hands and feet of Jesus, and they talk about the things you should do for Jesus, and they talk about the kingdom, and they talk about all these things, and yet when you have a real conversation with a lot of these people, they've never been confronted with what it takes to have a new birth. Just like Nicodemus. I mean, it amazes me. He came to the Lord at night and said, Lord, basically, what does it take? And he said, you have to be born from above. Whatever problems Missionary Baptists might have, whatever frustrations we might have with the way we do things, the traditions, which some of them we might need to let go of, some of them we might not, I am thankful for that, that the Lord has used this group of people to tell people how to be saved. Because if you have not had an experience of salvation with God, there is no sanctification. If you've never been born, you're not a spiritual child of God and you can't do anything good for Him. There are no hands and feet of Jesus unless you know Him. And so... I'm thankful to God, partly in saying I'm thankful for your faithfulness. I'm thankful that whatever else we haven't done right, we've told people what it takes to be saved. And I'm thankful for that.
I want to read a verse from John and then we're going to spend some time in the Hebrew letter. Just one verse from John. If you want to go on and turn over to Hebrews, we'll, we'll turn over there in a moment. John chapter 1 verse 17 says, The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Everything that I just said in the introduction that, 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 that is the sentiment of my heart, that's not the message God gave me for today. That's just some things on my heart I had to tell you. This is the message God gave me for today. What is going through the motions going to get us? What good will going through the motions do? That's what's on my heart. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. Jesus spent His life on earth, His earthly ministry, preaching, convincing people, showing people that He was the fulfillment of the law. And the religious elite, the smartest people about Judaism, about religion, were the ones who could not understand and accept that Jesus was the Messiah. They couldn't handle it. And John tells us clearly, the law came by Moses. These people thought the law was a means of justification and it never was. Paul said the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. It never was the Savior. And even in the rules and regulations of the law, and we're going to read about this in chapter 10 of Hebrews, no one ever found justification with God. Jesus taught clearly, if you are guilty of breaking one point of the law, you are guilty of breaking the whole law. And no one can honestly say, I have kept the law in its purity and its entirety. When someone came to Jesus and said, basically, what is the greatest commandment? He said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Every one of us can dig into our hearts and know that we've never loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength for any period or length of time. That moment of surrender when the Lord saved me, I don't even know if I loved Him with everything in me then. But I gave in. And so we spend our whole lives trying to learn how to love the Lord better. Learn what that means. That is the fulfilling of the law. It never was about checking off some boxes and following some rules and regulations. And somehow I'm afraid that these days that God's people have been infected with some of this idea that if we just do the things that we think are right, if we just follow the old paths, if we just do what was passed down to us, that somehow that's going to take care of everything and God's going to be pleased. But the law was never about a set of regulations. The law was about the Savior. When God gave Moses the law, it was to point to the fact that we can't fulfill it. The law was always supposed to show us our incompleteness. It was never meant to justify because it can't justify. And that's what this chapter is about. I'm beginning reading chapter 10 of Hebrews. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, 
can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins? But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh unto the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, or you didn't desire it, but a body you have prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Let me pause there. If Jesus recognized and the prophets recognized that God, who commanded burnt offerings and sacrifices, didn't take any pleasure in the burnt offerings and sacrifices themselves, they recognized that. How much more do we need to recognize that today in light of the Messiah having come and lived and made a way for us? A way of grace and truth. Then said I, this is about Jesus, this is as if he's speaking. Then said I, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, you had no desire for it, you had no pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then he said, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. This is now the writer of Hebrews explaining what Jesus meant when he said that. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. Did Jesus do away with the law? I always hear these intellectual debates about what part of the law we should observe. And it amazes me how Christians latch on to certain things like dietary restrictions. Can't eat shellfish, can't eat pork. And then they wear clothing that's mixed, cotton and polysynthetics. That's condemned in the law as well. I'm not making fun of people. We need to all follow the conscience that God has put inside of us. If there's something you feel condemned about, don't do it. But my point is, when people try to piecemeal together and follow parts of the law and then they utterly miss other parts, what must God think of that? The Hebrew writer says, Jesus takes away the first that he may establish the second. He took away the law. He fulfilled it. Now, Jesus said in another place, He said, I did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. Why? Because, and we see this later in this chapter. Let, let me keep reading, and then we'll explain it. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We are purified, we're made saved, and we're sanctified through Jesus, never through the law. And then he explains, every priest stands daily ministering and often offering these same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected or completed forever them that are saved or sanctified. Whereof the Holy Spirit also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. 
Now, where the remission of these is, there's no more offering for sin. At the center, at the heart of the law that Moses gave was a provision, an offering for for all types of sin. A wave offering, a heave offering, a blood offering. So many offerings for every aspect of sin. And even the priest, once a year when he came into the Holy of Holies, he offered a sacrifice not only for his sins, but for the sin of the people. And all of these sacrifices were pointing to the final sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So on the one hand, Jesus did do away with the law. But on the other hand, the law is perpetuated in the hearts and the minds of God's people. His law is written in our hearts when He saves us, and we now have a more clear understanding of that law than we ever would through intellectual research. That is why Paul says the Gentiles become a law unto themselves because those people who never knew about the law when God saved them started obeying the law without even realizing it. What is the law? Love God with everything in you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that's the fulfilling of the law. It was never about rules and regulations. It was about your heart. And God, by His grace, has made a way to write His law, His intended purpose for mankind, into our hearts when He saves us. But the law, as the beginning of this chapter says, was a shadow of things to come and not the very image of the things. It never, it was never it. Jesus is it. You understand? Where a mission of these is, 18th verse, there's no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holies by the blood of Jesus, into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has prepared and consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure Water. A new and living way. When Jesus was crucified, most of you will remember the temple veil was torn in half, rent, torn in half from top to bottom. And if you read in history, that that veil, it wasn't just some little thin piece of fabric. I've read in some commentaries that if you attached a team of horses to one side and one to the other side and pulled in half, it wouldn't tear. This was not a, a thin material. And yet, when Jesus died, it was torn. The veil, the separation between the holiest of holies of God, where His presence was, that veil, which is the body of Jesus Christ, His body was broken and bloodied for us, and He made a new and living way into the presence of God for all of us. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, whatever we do with religion, that has to be the central theme, burden, and desire. Jesus is everything. He is the new and living way. We read also in the New Testament this phrasing, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, which is also an old commandment. (laughs) Don't you love that? How can we be most pleasing to God in this new and living way that He's given us through the man Jesus Christ? To love. 
to love. I was listening to the testimony, and this is years ago, uh, back in the 70s, but I was listening to his testimony for the first time recently. A man named Nicky Cruz, who was the head of a, a gang in New York, tough, tough gang member. And God sent a man to preach the gospel to these people, these gang members, murderers. And as he tells in his testimony, this Nicky Cruz, he says, this preacher came and he was preaching the gospel and I was threatening his life. I was saying, you get out of here, I'm going to shoot you. And he said, this preacher looked at me with tears running down his face. And he asked, he said, what do you want? The gang member said to the preacher, and he said, I just want to be your friend. I just want to know you. Complete love. He says he was getting ready to shoot him, and he looked around, and some of his toughest gang members were just crumbled on the ground, tears running down their face. He said, what's wrong with you? And they said, I don't know. And many of them were saved right there. Love. Sometimes religion encourages to do the opposite. Stay away from the dirty people. Stay away from the dangerous people. You know, teach your kids not to be that way. And all that is well and good. But there's a time that God intends to use us to show love that completely disarms the, the worst sinner. That's what Jesus did with his life. There's a scripture that says, this was the perception. Jesus came eating and drinking and you call him a, a wine-bibber and a glutton, a friend of sinners. But he said, I've not come to save, I, I've come to seek and save that which was lost. They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick do. I feel like sometimes religion gets in the way of us actually doing what Jesus meant for us to do with the gospel. And I guess what, I, what is on my heart to try to get across to us today is the law never justified. It was never the system. It was never the traditions. It was never the rules and regulations. It was always the heart of the matter that God was looking for. And if we feel like we're doing what God wants just because we're following what we feel like our parents handed down to us, we're missing the point. Because there is a heart underneath the old-timey way that people talk about. And if that heart is not there, then you're not doing what you think you are. I've gone to services where, and I pray that I haven't been guilty of this. Maybe I am because I'm just a man. But I've seen preachers get up and preach all the right words with none of the right feeling. Say all the right things and there's no brokenness and there's no love and there's no compassion. They talk about you need to come seek the Lord, but there's no tears, there's no kindness, there's no concern. It's almost like a critical thing. It should break our hearts that people are going to hell, just like that preacher David Wilkerson went to the gang members with tears running down his face. You know that's what gets people... God gave me an opportunity to work in Germany for about seven months last year. And I was, I was working on military bases with soldiers and, and Marines and airmen, a couple of sailors, um, helping them transition back to civilian life. And um, God gave me a chance to meet with all kinds of people 
some sort of flunky type people. They have those in the military too. All the way to high-ranking officers who were in charge of tens of thousands of men in Iraq and Afghanistan. I met with all of them. I met with the kind of people they make movies about. I mean, bonafide war heroes. And I, I can't tell you the number of these men who, who were the toughest people you will ever meet who were sitting in my office with tears. Because I was in tears. Because they finally found somebody who cared enough to be that vulnerable. Now, I'm not telling you this about me. I'm saying that's what reaches hard sinners. Honest, vulnerable compassion and brokenness. When somebody comes in and they're so hard and so mean, and I look at them and I think, oh man, you've been through things I can't imagine. You've suffered things I can't imagine. You've lost people who were close to you. I can't, I don't want to say out loud with the children here some of the things that they saw. But instead of being like, oh, don't talk that way, don't use those words, don't, you know, you're getting me dirty. There was something that happened in my heart that I just felt so broken for them. And they could feel it. And over and over they would say things like, I've never told anybody this before. And they would just dump a bunch of stuff on me. Why? Because I loved them. Why did I love them? It's not because of me. I'm not naturally patient, kind, or long-suffering. You can ask my wife. <laughs> Even after only a couple of months. I'm not that patient and nice and kind. Except when God overwhelms me to be. That's, that's the point of the gospel, brothers and sisters. And when I ask us what is going through the motions going to get us... <laughs> Going through the motions has never satisfied God. Going through the motions doesn't move people to seek the Lord. Going through the motions doesn't... It doesn't show people that we're any different. There was a time... You can read about it in Exodus around chapter 33 and before and after that, that section of Exodus. I won't turn there for the sake of time because I have other things to get to, but I, I want to tell you about it. God had a desire to continue a covenant with His people. This was a covenant that he established with Adam that he passed down all the way through uh, Abel, through Seth and Enoch, through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. This covenant was God's presence with man. God has always wanted a covenant relationship with his people. The Jews came to a place where they were more interested in a contract relationship. Give us the rules and regulations, we'll follow them. That's what they wanted. That's why they got the law. Moses was up in the mountain. The people were terrified. The mountain was quaking and, and uh, lightning and thunder and all this. And the people were rightly terrified. Moses came down and he said, Listen, don't be afraid. God is only doing this to test whether you really want to be in His presence. You remember what they told Moses? They said, You go up and talk to God. We're going to stay here. God wanted to have a relationship with those people like He had with Moses. That was His heart. He wanted a covenant relationship with those people. He wanted to be in relationship with those people just like He was with Moses, where Moses wanted His presence even if it killed Him. Remember when Moses said, Lord, show me Your glory? And the Lord said, if I show you my glory, you'll die? <laughs> Moses would have been happy to die if he could see God's glory. 
God wanted that kind of relationship with those people. Here's what they said. You go talk to God. Find out what He wants us to do. Tell us and we'll do it. But we're not going to go talk to Him. We're afraid. And the whole rest of religious history after that, people have been trying to justify themselves in the sight of God by doing certain things. And so they got the law, which God did give to Moses. But there's a reason the New Testament makes this distinctive, that the law was given by Moses, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. There's a reason for that, because the law was never what God intended. What God intended was what He had in the garden. Unbroken fellowship with us. In the cool of the evening, the Lord came down and walked with Adam and Eve. And then he walked among us in the form of a man as Jesus Christ. That's what God has always wanted. There was a time in that uh, segment of, of before the law came with Moses that God got so angry that he said, these people are making me burn with anger. I'm going to kill all of them. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And I want us to understand how serious that was. God could have done that. He could have done that without breaking his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because Moses was part of that lineage. He could have started over with him. It would have just taken a little longer. Like, God really could have done that. And Moses came to him and begged him, and he reminded him of, of who he is and his promises, and begged him to have mercy. And he said, fine, this, I won't kill the people. I'll allow them to be protected, but I'm not going to go with you. You can go into the promised land. You can have my promises. You can have my blessings, but you can't have my presence. These people are too stiff-necked and sinful and rebellious. I can't go with them. Remember what Moses said? Lord, if your presence go not with us, carry us not up hence. For how else shall the nations of the world know that we are your people unless your presence is with us? Brothers and sisters, the only thing that makes us any different than anybody else is if we have the presence of God. Amen. Period. I'm afraid too many Christians today are willing to settle for the blessings of God and pass on His presence. Too many Christians are like those Israelites who said, you go talk to God, find out what He wants us to do, we'll do it. Moses said, Lord, your blessings aren't enough, I want you. And that's what's in my heart this morning, that it's not enough to just pass down the old way. It's not enough to just be faithful. Although, from my heart, I'm thankful that you are faithful. That's not enough. It's not enough to just keep doing the right thing. What God wants is our hearts. God wants us to have such a hunger and thirst for Him that we say, Lord, thank you for your blessings. They're not enough. I need you. It's not enough for you to give me comfort and pleasure and happiness and joy. I want you. Sometimes we lose sight of God in light of the blessings of God. Sometimes He's so good to us we forget that what we really want is Him.
I'm sort of at a loss for how to proceed. I, I have some more scriptures that I, I may look at a couple of them. But if I could just get us to grasp this burden that God has given me. He wants our hearts. That's it. It's not enough to be right. It's not enough to be right. We need Him. Do you remember the letters that God had John write in the beginning of Revelation? Told him, he said, write these letters to the seven churches. And each church had its own problems. And the first church was at Ephesus. And he said, I know your works. I know that you hate the works of iniquity. You've been faithful. You've done all the right things. He said, nevertheless, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. And brothers and sisters, I'm not telling you that today. I don't know. I can't see your hearts. But I can tell you there have been times in my life that I've lost my first love. That I've still been trying to do the right things, but I've forgotten why. And out of the seven churches with all their problems, that was the only church that the Lord said, I'll remove your candlestick. We're never going to be perfect. There is no church in existence, and there never has been, that is without problems. The very first church established by Jesus Christ Himself had at least one demon in it. Judas. He didn't know the Lord. He was evil. One out of twelve of those men. And if the church that Jesus birthed started that way, we cannot expect that we'll have a congregation that's just perfect. There's always going to be human error. There's always going to be problems. There's always going to be personality conflicts. What we always have to return to in light of that is our first love. Remember what, what it, I remember how it felt when God saved me. The burden rolled away. This lightness came over me. All the pain and agony was lifted. I wasn't afraid to die anymore. I've almost died since then, you know, and I'm not afraid to die. When we were in the hospital, my wife kept getting worse and worse. I don't know if she could have died, but I wasn't afraid of it. I didn't like the idea of it. It was hard. It was miserable. But it, I wasn't afraid. You understand? God takes that away. It's amazing. And I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but without some hardship in my life, I lose sight of my first love. Well, Jesus is the new and perfect way. I want to talk about Him a little bit before I close. The law is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things. And the law is good in many ways because it points us to God. But Jesus Christ is the very radiance of the glory of God. Jesus, you read in Colossians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. All things are by Him and for Him. And in Him all things consist. He's the head of the body. He's the faithful one. He's the great shepherd who goes out and rescues the sheep. Jesus is the one who modeled the life we should follow. Jesus is the one who created this new and living way. And if we wonder how to be better Christians, all we have to do is look at Him. Jesus is the answer to all the questions we're afraid to ask. Jesus is the answer to the hurt you have inside, to your depression, to your anxiety, to your despair. Jesus is the answer to your pride and He'll crush it for you if you want Him to and maybe if you don't want Him to. 
Jesus is everything we need. Do you understand? Radiance of the glory of God. The second chapter of Colossians, it talks about Jesus blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which were against us. Blotted out the law. Wrote it in our hearts in a more pure way than it was ever written on paper. You know one thing that changed in me when God saved me? I wasn't capable of maintaining hatred towards somebody for any period of time after that. That's the law written in my heart. There's no amount of doing the right thing that can equal what happens when God puts love in you that you aren't capable of hating somebody anymore. I mean, maybe for brief moments, but as far as a lengthy period of time, I can't. I'm ashamed to say I've tried. And God takes it away. The people who've been the worst to me, I don't even wish evil things for them. That's Jesus. In Christ are hid, you read this in Colossians 2, in Christ are hid all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Want to know what God wants? Get to know Jesus better. The sixth verse, second chapter, Paul says this, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. That is the the foundation, the heart of what I'm talking about. What God gives, what Jesus truly gives, causes His saints to abound with thanksgiving. Oh sure, there's time for brokenness, there's time for weeping, but weeping endures for a moment. Light comes in the morning. And underneath any kind of brokenness and weeping and pain that we have, there is a joy knowing that we know God, isn't there? Abounding with thanksgiving. All the doctrines, this is kind of the heart of what I want to wrap up with. All of the doctrines that we adhere to, that we teach, that we insist on, all of the doctrines should ultimately result in abounding thanksgiving. What is the point of the doctrines about discipline? And I believe in church discipline. What is the point of those doctrines, though? The point is that people might be restored. And then we're abounding in thanksgiving. That's the point of practicing this discipline. It's not about punishing the sinner. It's about demonstrating the judgment and justice of God so that people will realize their need to repent and come back into the fold of Jesus. That will cause abounding in thanksgiving. Even those... uh, Traditions, customs, laws, if you want to call it that, that God expects His churches to have, if we practice those appropriately, they will result in abounding love. Doctrines that make us go back on our heels in defensiveness, they're not the doctrines of Christ. Are they? The doctrines of Christ bring life to the hearers. The doctrines of Christ, there's no fear in love. You know what defensiveness is made out of? Fear. This us versus them idea. This mentality of, we got to protect what's our own. 
No, God will do the protecting for us. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. You can protect the things of God. He's going to do it himself. Take that burden off of you. When we grow too defensive about a system, we lose sight of the Savior, don't we? And I want to tell you, and I, I know you, you, if you'll stop and really think about it, you believe this. God didn't give us a system. He gave us a Savior. Oh, there's a right way to do things. Absolutely. I'm not talking about anarchy. I'm not talking about tearing down the old ways. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm just saying that underneath the old ways is the Savior. Everything that we practiced, all the traditions that were handed down, at some point somebody tried to hand those down to lift up the Savior. And if somehow some traditions don't lift Him up, we should re-examine them. Period. I'm not pointing out specific things. I don't know what those are. God knows. But here's what I know. People aren't perfect. God is unchanging. We change. Culture changes. Expectations change. Traditions changes. And sometimes the way that we preach the gospel changes. Not the truth, not the substance. But if Paul had preached a Peter gospel to those people in the Greek empire, he wouldn't have had the effect he had. He went to them and preached the way God had gifted him with the heart that he'd given him. He didn't just preach what the council at Jerusalem wanted him to. He preached what God gave him. What did he say? You men of Athens, you're altogether too superstitious. As I was walking among your idols today, I beheld one that had this inscription to the unknown God. Him I declare unto you. In Him we live and move and have our being. That was how Paul preached to those people because it was the only way they could understand the gospel. He didn't talk about Jewish traditions to them because it wouldn't have meant anything. And the world we're trying to reach... Church traditions don't mean anything to them. What they want to know is how to be rescued. What they want to know is how to keep their son from killing himself or their daughter from overdosing or their husband from leaving or their wife from having... That's what they want to know. My life is a mess. The world is crumbling around me. How can I find help? Jesus. You know, doctrines that make us look on sinners with aggressive criticism, they're not the doctrines of Christ, are they? And sometimes, if we're not careful, what we learn in church tempts us to feel that way toward dirty people. Jesus, again, modeled how we should feel toward sinners. There was a woman caught in the act of adultery. All the religious people were so excited to stone her. They were rejoicing in getting to stone this woman. Put this evil sinner to to judgment. What did Jesus say? After somehow he showed them their hearts and they all walked away. He said, woman, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know, he looked on her with unconditional love. Brothers and sisters, I I really feel like as we go into the future and in some ways church... You know, attendance dwindles down and we face new challenges and we have discouragement. We have all these problems. Jesus hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. What we need to return to is abounding love. Don't we? And you may have that. I haven't been to this church in some years. Maybe this is just a reminder to you to continue in faithfulness. But I know that God... 
is faithful who promised, and he who has begun a good work in us will perform it unto the day of Jesus. My prayer, I have to leave this message, you know, all I can do is deliver what God has put in my heart. I have to leave the results up to him. But as far as I can tell, my prayer is that we would all be stirred up to serve God better with hearts of greater humility and service and brokenness that God can repair and then use for his glory. That's what I want. I'll say one more thing about my my new wife. When we were in the hospital, and babe, this is probably putting you on the spot, but oh well. See, I fell in love with this person that I, I call my little girl, her, and I saw this glimpse of this heart she has, and most of the time, it's hidden behind some type of defensive mechanisms that we learn from living in a world that's hard. People maybe we love have hurt us, or things have been difficult, or it's just hard to be vulnerable. And yet somehow underneath all that, I saw this, this person that God drew my heart to, that he made to be my wife, that I waited, I mean, over a decade for. And then in the hospital, as she was losing more and more of the function of her body, I saw all those walls of defensiveness stripped away, and the little girl I fell in love with. For a couple of weeks there, that's all I saw. And I wish I could convey to you the effect that had on the medical staff, the doctors and nurses and um, care providers. They would come hang out in our room. (laughs) They didn't want to leave because they found something in that room that was different. And you know what? It wasn't her. It was that God used these circumstances to strip away all the baggage that we all collect in our lives. And for a little amount of time, allowed her to be just vulnerable and honest, broken, helpless. You know, I think what's really on my heart with this message is to remind us that what I saw in my wife is actually the reality about all of us. We're actually all helpless. Our own strength is an illusion. Our own ideas are vanity. Our own power is a distraction. The way we help the world, the way we win lost sinners, is to actually live before them with honesty about that. I'm nothing without God. I've been confronted with my own powerlessness enough in my life that I know that's true. And that's why I'm broken before you today, because I know that this message God has put on my heart is a burden that I'm incapable of motivating or conveying into you. I can't help you understand what God has put in my heart unless He does it. Understand? That's why I'm so broken about it, because I have a heart that God's people will once again turn the world upside down. And yet everywhere I go to preach, the churches are empty and people are doing the same things they've always done. And I'm not saying that with criticism. I'm saying my heart 
is that we would be so sold out for the Lord that people would once again say, what in the world is different about that place? I have to go find out. Do you believe that can happen again? Oh, I do. And many of you faithful saints of God who grew up in those kind of services, I was saved in that kind of a service. If you remember that year, I don't know. I know it wasn't as important to you as it was to me. But I didn't make it to the altar because there wasn't room. There were too many people in the floor praying. I'm not saying to manufacture that, but I'm saying God can bring real powerful demonstrations of His power and glory once again. What it takes is us to be honest about our own limitations. Going through the motions won't do that. And you know that's true. 